I am really excited to be talking to Ruth and Al about uh, about this book here that they've written, Being Interrupted. I, when I was reading this book, I was thinking about a story of um, several years ago when I was in pastoral ministry and I had a great um, assembly lined up at school um, for Thursday morning and um, talking about the coming, in fact it was this time of year, it was around biking and um, sadly the night before um, a bomb was detonated in Manchester um, where the church I was working in was located and all of a sudden it interrupted what I was doing um, that following morning and yet still um, being uh, open to change God worked through that moment and um, and changed uh, what what I did change but actually became an opportunity um, for mission in a much different way um, making the most of what was a tragic uh, and devastating situation. And so that's kind of the question we're asking tonight. Why are those events, those big life-changing events sometimes that come along and interrupt what we plan to do and change, um, change our mission completely? Um, and are they just an annoyance and inconvenience or actually can they shape the mission uh, that we as a church should be doing and how we engage? And we hope we're going to answer those questions um, um well I, I think we um i hope that ruth and al are going to answer those questions uh tonight as we chat and i've got to say um i was saying earlier that this book has so much in it and um, i think we'll just only scratch the surface uh, of what's written and i'm not here i am on no commission whatsoever but i really would advocate going out and getting this book and reading it it tackles i think all the big issues uh, are they going on in society at the moment that we as a church should be looking at so um really really helpful. i promise ruth and i don't say that about every book that we've we've looked at so far so this is good um i'd invite you to both uh, unmute yourselves and um the book very much begins by asking the question about when we talk about we what do we mean and who are we so that seems like a really great place to start perhaps i could start with ruth um asking you to explain who you are and perhaps why you came to be part of writing this book. Thanks Stuart, um, great to be with you this evening. Uh, so my name is Ruth, Ruth Harley. I am currently an ordinand training for ordained ministry in the Church of England um, here in Birmingham at the Queen's Foundation for Ecumenical Theological Education, but not for much longer. In a couple of weeks, I'll be moving into my curacy post in Milton Keynes in the Diocese of Oxford. Um, and prior to that, my background is in children's and youth work and in the charity sector. Um, and I sort of, I sometimes tell people I sort of fell into writing this book by accident. That's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but not much. Um, so, it, it all started when Al posted a, a blog post uh, a few years ago with some of the kind of central questions that, that eventually made it into the book. Um, and you know, when you read something and you just go, yes, somebody's saying the things I've been thinking. So I enthusiastically blog posted back with a response. Um, and, and then Al and I um, found ourselves working together and then, um, he asked me if I'd be interested in writing a chapter and uh, well, one thing led to another and we ended up uh, co-writing this book. So it's been a bit of an adventure. Um, yes, one of our, our great phrases that we've used to each other along this journey is yes and, um, and really it is a series of yes ands that has led us to this point, I think. <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. Um, Al, um, ask the same question to you if you can explain who you are and why you came to, to write this book. <clears throat> Thanks, Stuart. Um, so, Al Barrett, uh, I've been Anglican priest in uh, Church of England URC Ecumenical Partnership in Hodge Hill in East Birmingham for the last 11 years now, so since 2010. Um, <clears throat> and, and for me, this book really has arisen out of uh, my journey with members of my congregation and with neighbours on the first and Bromford estate where I live over those 11 years. And I think for me, uh, it began when I arrived in Hodgehill with a church congregation that had been displaced from their building, which had been closed a couple of years before. Um, 
And when I arrived as the new vicar, one of the things I heard again and again was, we don't know how to be church anymore. We don't know how to do mission anymore because we haven't got a building. Um, all the ways in which we knew how to be who we are have been taken from us. And, and we, we just don't know quite kind of where to go. Um, and what's been wonderfully exciting on the journey since then has been not just discovering uh, a way of being church that's not been centered on a building, um, but discovering a way of engaging in what we've been able to name mission uh, that so often has not been about our initiatives as church, our projects, um, the things that we start and run and manage and then desperately try to sustain, but about discovering where our neighbours are, what gifts God has given them, what passions they have that they're wanting to bring to fruition, and the ways in which they both enrich our lives as church and as neighbours within the community, but also often challenge and stretch and redirect um, the ways in which we thought we might find ourselves going. And so I'm both Ruth and I have called this an adventure plenty of times along the way. And, and it, it precisely has been that kind of adventure that there's been no clear destination. There's been no clear plan of kind of where this is going, but there've been all kinds of wonderful uh, discoveries and surprises along the way. And that, that goes for, for our journey as a church locally. Uh, it goes for our wider community building journey locally, and it certainly goes for, for the journey of writing the book as well. Wow, there's so much um, in, in already the first answers that I could, I could, I've got to be careful because I could just go for all kinds of tangents just uh, where we've gone tonight, but we'll see how it goes. I need to say if anybody wants to ask a question, then please, um, there's a little Q&A button, they will get uh, fed through to me. And um, if I don't ask the question exactly as you've asked it, maybe because it's just coming up or um, I'll do my best to, to ask what you've asked anyway. But I've got a, a number of questions that I've kind of just brought up by working my way through, through the book. And if we go off a tangent, then that's fine. If not, we've got a guideline. And I kind of wanted to start really in a way, picking up on, on what you just said, Alan, please. I don't want to decide who answers the question, so you can fight it out between yourselves as to who answers the question. Well, the first one, you start, the book starts off very much by, by telling the story of the annual nativity that was that was interrupted by a, um, a, a director into the kit shop, wasn't it, and, um, and changed. I, I love that story. So I wonder, first of all, perhaps you could share the story uh, briefly for those who don't know it. And then what... What might you say to those who would perhaps argue that, that you shouldn't have allowed that diversion? This was about claiming the gospel message and you should have stuck to the tracks of where you went to. Thank you. All right. Um, I'll, I'll tell this one as, as, as I was there, and I think Ruth wasn't on this occasion. Um, so over, over a few years now on the Fairson Bromford estate where I live, um, our local theatre group, uh, which is not affiliated to the church, it's, uh, it's a group that's sprung up in the neighbourhood, um, has had various annual traditions, including the Christmas Panto, um, but usually about a week after the Christmas Panto, the theatre group have taken the lead on a what we call a street nativity play. Um, so unlike your standard nativity play, uh, which tends to be in church, uh, mostly performed by children. Uh, this is out on the streets of our estate, performed by adults, uh, most of whom are from the theatre group. Uh, some are people from uh, the church community uh, that aren't normally members of the theatre group that are up for joining in. Some have been wider neighbours that have come into the nativity through uh, maybe some of the places of welcome and uh, community lunches that happen over the course of the average week and have just kind of had their arm twisted a bit to play a shepherd or Joseph or a wise man or um, uh, or an angel or, or whatever. Um, so the, the nativity play is, is usually um, a wonderfully messy uh, but joyful um, operation and 
and we, we use a number of different uh, places around the neighbourhood for different stations along the way. And they tend to vary from year to year, but the, the year in, in question, um, we asked Sonny, who runs the local chip shop, to be King Herod. So towards the end of the story, as the Magi uh, arrive in Jerusalem, uh, they came to Sonny's chip shop and asked him uh, if he knew where the baby Jesus was. Um, and Sonny came out of the chip shop in his kind of long black and gold robe with his crown on his head and delivered his line about um, going and finding the baby and then coming back to, uh, to report back to him. And then he took his crown and his robe off and said, right, everybody into the shop, uh, free fish and chips all round. Um, which was wonderful, except the, the plan, as much as there was one, was that the final stop on the journey was to get to Bethlehem at the church building this time, uh, to be welcomed with mulled wine and mince pies uh, that a team were, were already kind of warming up in the kitchen at church, and then to go into our carol service. Um, so at this point, I kind of hastily get my phone out of my pocket, ring up the folk at church and just say, do you know what? We were planning to be with you in about five minutes, but it's going to be a good half an hour, I think. Um, and, and people are going to be much less hungry than we thought they were. <laughs> um, and, and they were fine about it. And actually, you know, that, that moment that turned into um, an act of sharing inside and outside Sonny's chip shop, was just one of those God-given moments of grace and abundance, um, totally unexpected, totally unengineered, um, an interruption to, to our plans, but actually a perfect illustration of uh, what we in the book call the kingdom of God, um, kingdom without the G, uh, that sense of kinship between us, that sense of sharing and abundance. Um, and, and I think for us, we wanted to start with that story because it so wonderfully illustrates so much of what we want to say in the book that, that actually the gospel is something that we're still discovering. The gospel is something. The gospel is something that sometimes freezes on... I mean, uh, yes, sometimes being interrupted can come in all shapes and sizes. <laughs> um, Al, are you back with us? No? Am I back? Yes. Can you hear you me? Are. Yes. Oh. Al did warn us that his, uh, his camera had been somewhat dubious with a long list of which we won't uh, interrupt with PC problems. But uh, here we are, we've got Al in a kind of sepia colour, which is lovely to have you back. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, right, right in the mid flow as well. Um, so I think I was trying to say that the wonders in grace we got. Yeah. <laughs> so and and that the gospel is something that we we Christians don't have fully sorted out, prepackaged that we just need to kind of work out how to how to sell to our neighbours. The gospel is actually something that's dynamic and continuing to unfold, that we're discovering. Um, if we have eyes and ears open, that we're discovering unfolding in our neighbourhoods with our neighbours, and that God is, is is leading us deeper into the gospel in ways that that actually are, are profoundly richer for those those friendships and encounters and interruptions with our neighbours. I, I like that story because for me coming to the book I felt it rooted this kind of idea of encounter very much in um, being encouraged to let go of our own particular agenda and, and listen to other people's conversations I thought that rooted it really well and I think in the book you 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 pick up on some really big kind of meaty uh, issues that are both um, are both worked out locally and internationally you know you talk about systemic racism um which sadly is in our news more than ever at the moment toxic masculinity you talk about class inequality um you know particularly around grenfell and but but again we see tonight on news of housing associations we're not dealing with problems for, for residents we talk about austerity which i guess goes into that climate change all these big interruptions but why do you think they should interrupt and perhaps even dictate the church's agenda? 
I think one of the concepts that's probably quite useful to introduce at this point is the idea of obliviousness. So all of those concepts that you've just mentioned around race, class and gender, which are our kind of three primary lenses that we're using, but also around the relationship between humans and our other than human kin and between adults and children, those are all um, fault lines of inequality. Um, and fault lines of hierarchy and of power and privilege. And one of the ways that they function is by those of us who inhabit a place of privilege in some or all of those dimensions, being oblivious to that privilege. Um, we think it doesn't affect our lives, but actually it affects absolutely everything about our lives. And one mm. of the ways it affects us is keeping us oblivious to our own privilege and our neighbor's oppression um and the church i think one of the questions we ask is how does that oblivious man obliviousness manifest itself in the church um one of the ways we name it is as a power related willingness to not see and i think i think there are many ways in which the church colludes with that and lots of them are tied to what in the book we name as the church's institutional anxiety um, and that often is an anxiety that comes out of a sense of lack or scarcity or need either located within the church or within our neighbours um, and what we're wanting to say is what happens if we start from a place of abundance rather than scarcity? That's one of the really big questions in the book. Lots of models of mission begin with a starting point of scarcity, either within the church in the sense that we need more people um, or within our neighbours in that they need the gospel or they need us to provide for them in some way um, and all of that leads us back into those kind of colonialist patriarchal um, hierarchical models of thinking that underpin those dynamics that you've named um, so there's a lot tied up together there and i think much of this does shape the way that we we view mission and and i was conscious as i as i read through the book that actually those our location both physically in in perhaps where we've grown up and where we currently live but also in terms of our gender our sexuality our race um, our, um can also shape our interaction with the world and i wonder how much you think that does shape that interaction with the world but also how much it shapes the way that we we understand the gospel and therefore how we share that as, as a kind of community christian And I think um, to, to to continue Ruth's thread, if if those structural inequalities of power, which uh, most of these are, if if they mean that some of us, and it tends to almost always be those on the on the privileged side of those inequalities, if it means that some of us are oblivious to some of what's going on in the world to some of reality, then that means that there are, you know, quite literally, it means that there are things that we don't see. Um, and, and actually, if we, if we're seeking the good news for our world, then it's impossible to know what that good news is, if we don't know what the reality is that we're, um, that that good news is addressing. Um, and so I think, one of the really critical things for us about this sense of interruption is that that it's an interruption into those inequalities. Um, I'm sure if we thought about it, we've probably all been in meetings where among even just a group of men and women, without naming any other inequalities within those, um, a woman has been speaking and a man has interrupted them without probably even realizing that that's what they've been doing. Um, 
And so the kind of interruptions that we're talking about are not those from the people who are used to being the interrupters, but actually interruptions of people like me with multiple layers of privilege who are used to not being interrupted. And so it's precisely those kind of interruptions that come as surprises, that come as challenges, that we're saying are movements of the Holy Spirit, that we're saying are the, the opening up of what is closed by God. Um, sorry, the opening up by God of what is closed, just to be clear. Um, and, and so we're saying that actually, uh, for those who are used to being on the edges of conversations, of power, of decisions being made, of resources, um, it's precisely in those places where the good news is really obvious. And actually, it's precisely for people like me with multiple layers of privilege and therefore multiple layers of obliviousness that actually we might think we know what the gospel is but we almost certainly don't and the danger is that when we think we know what it is and we start imposing that on other people that we often do more damage than good so i think what we're, in, we're inviting people into is to those economies of power being interrupted uh, from the edges by, by the gospel, where it is known and experienced and seen much more, more fully. Um, we just uh, picked up on this and, and Jess um, asked us a question and, and he asked that we could please uh, excuse his ignorance because he's not read the book yet, but um, is it written as a wake up call for the church to discover the interruptions of life within the church? Or is it more of a call to spot the interruptions in life beyond the church and call out inequality within the wider world? Great question, Jeff. Um, both and would be my very short answer to that. Both and for sure. Um, and I just expand that perhaps by saying, um, I think perhaps we have a fuzzier approach to where the boundary of church is than many people might do. Um, so, so is it within the church? Is it outside the church? Where is that boundary? That's all quite a complicated question for us, but, but yeah, both and for sure. Um, I think we would hope that this would be a book that gives the church cause to reflect on how inequalities of power are manifest within the church as well as giving us cause to reflect on what our contribution might be to wider societal conversations and, and actions around those inequalities beyond the church. Um, yeah, great question though, Jeff, both and I think we'd say. And I guess just kind of moving up on that, you talk about obviously one of the, the, the big things in the United Kingdom of recent has been the whole debate over Brexit and I guess, for me, my reflection would be wherever people sat on, on which side of the debate, society feels a lot more uh, fragmented as a result of that. And there seems to be um, more of a, a, a narrative of us and them. And, um, and that feels, for me, um, really kind of uncomfortable. Do you think the church um, has a, a, a missional imperative, if you like, to... to uh, be part of a healing process and uh, and a kind of joining back together that which has been broken. And if so, where where do you think you begin with that? Shall I start with that? Go um, for it. I sense I, I'm probably going to get about halfway through and uh, and need to uh, uh, <laughs> need to need to broaden it with Ruth's yes ands. Um, so, uh, uh, in in terms of the the course of the book. Um, we, we try and describe and do a bit of anal analysis of Brexit quite early on. But I think if there's any kind of response that we begin to try and formulate, actually it takes to pretty much the other end of the book to, to begin to name it. Um, and I think you know, it's probably worth just doing a little bit of both of these. Um, 
so when we try and analyze Brexit, uh, we want to name class as a factor, uh, and we want to acknowledge uh, much of what has been said in recent years uh, that for working class communities in this country, um, Brexit, amongst other things, uh, can often represent a, a kind of sense of frustration, despair even, of being uh, ignored, overlooked, left behind, uh, left out. Um, but also wanting to acknowledge actually the race dimension as well. Not just that working class doesn't just mean white working class, and that actually if we if we look at some class analysis in terms of uh, employment status, affluence, uh, resources, actually many of our um, global majority heritage neighbours um, would, would fit into that working class bracket as well. But also to name that, that a key thread within uh, Brexit arguments has been rooted in uh, a history of empire, um, a history of English exceptionalism, um, and a history actually which is shaped by whiteness. Um, and so, you know, when we ask the question about who are we, when we're talking about we, I think often uh, the Brexit conversation, whether it's explicit about it or not, focuses in on a we, which actually means we white people. Um, and so I think, you know, that feels really important to name. The other end of this, and I think I want to hand over to Ruth in a minute, um, is, is when, we, when we come to the chapter on the cross uh, and we think about the Roman centurion particularly and the journey that he might go on, uh, we use a number of R words, but the R word that we don't get close to is the word reconciliation. And the reason we don't get close to it and certainly don't start with it is that it feels to us a lot of the time that the church is really eager to jump to reconciliation quickly. And the church is really eager to think that actually we have something, and I think in the words of your question, Stuart, we have something to offer in terms of reconciliation here. And actually we want to say particularly, and we both come out of an Anglican perspective, particularly from the Church of England, uh, we want to say that reconciliation can be a dangerous word if it's employed early in the conversation because it can so easily be used to paper over deep gaping chasms and actually what we want to do is try and address some of the deep gaping chasms first. Yeah and I think I would add to that um, reconciliation can be a dangerous word used too early and reconciliation can be a very dangerous word when it is used by those who have more power in a situation. Um, and sometimes that is how the church has used reconciliation. You know, sometimes we have wielded it as a tool to get what we want and what we think is right, um, without really engaging in that deep work of, of listening and of being open and receptive to hearing something other than what we expect. Um, so the R words that we do use um, around the, the crucifixion chapter and the possibilities that might exist for the Roman centurion after he says, truly this man is the son of God. Um, those are much less grandiose R words. So we talk about relocation, we talk about relinquishing, we talk about receptivity, and then we talk about repentance not as the end of a process but as sort of the turn of a spiral we envisage that as a repeated spiraling kind of a process um and all of those things really um but particularly those sort of earlier stages of that spiral of relocation and relinquishing are about those of us who have power in a particular situation those of us who have privilege and obliviousness and all those things we've already talked about 
um, being willing to put ourselves in the way of those who are other to us, being willing to find those spaces where we can bump up against somebody whose perspective is different from ours, and then being willing to truly hear. One of the phrases we use, um, which we've borrowed from the feminist theologian Nella Morton, is hearing into speech. Being willing to hear into speech those interruptions which we are not expecting and which challenge our view of the world. Um, and I think we'd want to say that that's long, hard work that's rooted in real relationship. Um, and I think may lead to reconciliation ultimately, or may not, but isn't that sort of rush to, well, if we just get everyone in a room together, we can sort it all out. Um, because that isn't reconciliation, actually, that's papering over the cracks. And I think one of the churches, one of, one of the challenges that we need to hear and accept as a church is that that is something we have historically done. We have papered over the cracks um, because they're too uncomfortable to look at and to live with. And actually there's work to be done in removing some of that paper and looking into some of those cracks and fault lines and doing the work that will really lead to transformation. Um, but I think a lot of that work involves recognizing that often our role is to step back and not take control. I, I was um, I was conscious in, in reading the book that you talk about um, living in a non-listening culture and a use of phrase, what are we not seeing? And it kind of reminded me of that phrase as well, that sometimes when we have conversations and we think we're doing great, we actually have to look around and see who's not in the room mm. and not part of those conversations. And I guess, some of that that ties into that as well, and I mean, I think you talk as well about the church being part of the problem. You know, we mm. we have lots of people with privilege and education and status and wealth that, that dictate the conversation. I'm conscious as well. I've been reading some things lately, um, and, and some circle I've been looking at that talks about the Black Lives Matter movement, and um, and, and often a Christian argument I've, I've heard said, although personally I wouldn't agree with it, is that surely if we love our neighbour all lives matter um and i just wondered what your thoughts were on that and and should and and if we should how should the church challenge that viewpoint um i think we would I, I i rarely speak for both of us but i think i would speak for both of us when i say we would heartily disagree with that that viewpoint that you have just outlined um and would want to really firmly and loudly say that Black Lives Matter is one of those interruptions that we who are white really, really need to attentively hear and allow ourselves to be challenged and transformed by. Um, of course, all lives matter. We know that. We don't need to say it because we know it. But very often the churches that we represent and the society that we live in has acted as if it were not the case that black lives matter and there's something really important about paying attention to the particularity of that because there's something important about paying attention to the particularity of individuals as god created god imaging people um and not trying to say oh well we're kind of all the same and does the difference really matter and, and all those sorts of things Particularity does matter, difference does matter. Um, and it particularly matters when, as in this instance that we're discussing, it comes with such an absolutely hefty, massive historical inequality of power. Um, and we who are on the privileged end of that inequality because we are white, really need to be aware of that and be listening attentively and willing to be changed and transformed by that interruption and that challenge. Al, do you want to add anything there? Um, yeah, you've done a really good job. Um, I, I think, uh, and it's, it's delicate and holy ground to tread on, uh, but I think one of the things that I would want to name is, is where is the spirit in all of this? And 
and actually at the heart of the 2020 explosion into public consciousness of Black Lives Matter was the murder of a black man by the might of a white police force. Uh, literally a knee on the neck, squeezing the breath out of somebody. And when we as white people hear our black siblings, neighbors saying, I can't breathe, we need to be radically interrupted by that in a way that stuns us into silence first before we dare to utter anything. And the first thing that we utter, if it's an attempt at correction of what we've heard, then we've totally not heard. Um, and I think actually our response almost in all cases needs to be not a verbal response, but actually a bodily response to, to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in the words, I can't breathe, and in the words, Black Lives Matter, to see where that movement is happening and to find ways of placing our bodies in those places. But placing our bodies not at the front of the crowd, but at somewhere near the back, so that we might continue to look and listen and learn and to hear where actually the challenge is being directed as us, at, at us in our complicity as white people who have benefited from the same system that murdered George Floyd. So I think, you know, that's, that's, the, that's some of the journey that, that those three words invite us, challenge us, demand that we go on. And it is the journey of following the Holy Spirit. Thank you, and that's just, I could talk about that issue alone for another 20 minutes, but well, that's sadly all we have left. I want to ask a question that we've had, and somebody here, um, again, is obviously on commission, they love the book, um, and you promote and underpin theologically a number of approaches we've been tentatively exploring, this person's been tentatively exploring. One of the challenges we recognise is people are surprised that churches can be open, and inclusive and receptive. How important is it to have a visible profile of inclusivity, or do we just simply get on with it? They ask. Ruth, do you want to start on that? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, again, I'm afraid I'm coming with a both and to this, um, as we very often are. I mean, I, and I think that's that's part of, of the nature of the thing. But um, I think. First and foremost, churches need to be inclusive if we want to be thought of as inclusive. I mean, that kind of sounds really obvious, and yet that isn't always how we behave as churches. Um, and I think first and foremost, we need to maybe interrogate the word inclusive a bit. Um, so if I am being inclusive of you, then the power still rests with me. If I am choosing to include you, then that's obviously better than choosing not to include you, but the power still rests with me. And I think what we would like to challenge people is to go a step beyond that and say, this isn't about us, the church, choosing to include them, the other people, in whatever other ways people may be other than us. Um, this is about us who call ourselves church, recognising that God has already chosen to include all of us together. And how we express that is quite complicated. I think probably we're still working at some of the language that would help us to briefly and succinctly express that. Um, but I think working and living in ways that express that is really important. On the other hand, um, 
I am part of a, a very inclusive organisation um, called On Fire Mission, which is a Catholic charismatic movement within the Church of England, but that's a bit by the by, really, um, which is a very inclusive movement. But it was only quite recently we realised we should maybe tell people that. Um, and that has been quite an important step. So I think the first thing to do is to live it and be it and inhabit it and also ask those questions about what we mean by inclusive and who the we is that's doing the including or that's being included and how we're challenging those power dynamics but yeah it definitely is also helpful to communicate it for sure but how we communicate that is really important we can't just keep saying it we communicate it best by the way that we live um it's and also, I think there is a certain amount of anxiety that we need to let go of around it. You know, there's that anxiety, isn't there, of, oh, well, how will everyone know we're inclusive? How can we make sure everyone knows that? And that, again, is rooted in a desire for control, for controlling the narrative about us, um, which we all have that desire. Of course we do. Um, but letting go of some of that desire um, and allowing allowing the narrative to be shaped, the narrative about who we are to be shaped by our neighbours, I think is a really important bit of giving up some of that power. Um, and it risks that the narrative will not be what we wanted it to be, but it might turn out to be something better or different or challenging or stretching to us. Um, it's been very interesting. So Al has obviously been at Hodge Hill for, for quite a while. I came to Hodge Hill just under three years ago. Um, so I've had the opportunity to listen to what the narrative of our neighbours is about the church. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone use the word inclusive, but that's not because they don't think it is. It's because that's just not the word they would use. I hear words about oh, you know, about them being good neighbours and being part of us. And, and actually, that's the way around I've most often heard it expressed. Not that we are included in the church, but that the church is part of us. It's part of our community. So perhaps there's something about rather than being inclusive or as well as being inclusive, allowing ourselves as church to become included in the diverse communities of our neighbourhood. Um, which starts to disrupt some of that that power dynamic around that. Well, that's really powerful in itself. Um, there, there's so much. I, I wish this webinar was three hours tonight, not an hour, because there's, I just don't kind of know where to go next. But I just want to touch on a couple of things. I mean, you talk about, a, a, well, you call it um, scales of economy. I'd kind of call them models of mission. I don't know them in different ways. I mean, you talk about the three and I'd love to touch on that, but I'm not sure we have massive amounts of time we've got, we've got left and perhaps, perhaps you could weave that into some of your answers. I think for me, this is a book that's a stories of encounter in so many ways, but encounter that, that where you become changed as a result of the encounter, not the person that you encounter so much becomes changed. And I think that's, that's marvellous. And I love the way that you illustrate that with stories from Mark's Gospel. And, and so I'm going to put you both on the spot with a really difficult question now in the sense of out of those stories of encountering Mark's gospel, which, you you know, stories of interruption, which um, which was your favourite story and what do you think it teaches us about being a missional church? I, I guess it's my, t my turn to go first, but go on, <laughs> it seems a bit unfair, really. Um, so there, there are two particularly that I have found myself playing with for the best part of 20 years um, and and there are some that I've encountered and and been uh, been encountered by more recently um, the two that I've been playing with the longest are the woman who anoints Jesus uh, and the Syrophoenician woman who challenges Jesus um, and I, I struggle to to pick a favourite between those two, because for me, in some ways, they illustrate the two sides of what we're trying to talk about. So the anointing woman comes with a gift, the God given gift of abundance, which transforms Jesus uh, in ways that that set him on the path for what he does next. They, uh, 
she literally anoints him and makes him the anointed one, the Christ. Um, the Syrophoenician woman challenges Jesus in ways that expand his horizons and turn him around in a way that I think so many interpreters of that story under undersell in the in the radicalness of it. Um, so they're they're my two favourites. Um, but I'm not going to say too much more because I've I've been cheeky and, and taken two anyway. So no, that's okay because I wasn't sure which one to go for out of my two favourites. But one of them is the Syrophoenician woman, so I'll leave that one because um, you've covered it really well and pick my other favourite, um, which is Jesus being interrupted by children. Jesus's encounter with with children. Um, and particularly, particularly when Jesus says, um, unless you receive the kingdom of heaven, like one of these little ones, you will never enter it. Um, and one of the ways in which we encounter scripture in this book and beyond um, is by paying attention to the verbs, being really attentive to those, those actions. Who is doing the action? What kind of actions are being done? Um, what's the sequence of those as, as a way of reading scripture and the verbs here are really interesting when we as churches speak about the kingdom we very often use verbs like growing the kingdom building the kingdom bringing in the kingdom and I think those verbs represent a particular missional model a particular economy of mission as we would name it um, but they're not the verbs Jesus uses Jesus uses receive and enter. Um, and I think that represents a very different kind of economy of mission, a much more, well, receptive economy of mission. Um, and the, I'll, I'll really briefly touch on the three economies now, if that's all right. Yeah, just, no, that's we'll absolutely. get that bit in. Um, so the, the two economies that we name as uh, being predominant in the church, um, certainly in the, in the Church of England, which is our particular corner of the church, um, but perhaps more generally as well, are um, an economy of counting in. So wanting to get more people in and more resources. Um, and that's very much a building kind of an economy um, and an economy of giving out, whether that is a sort of proclamation kind of a giving out or a sort of service kind of a giving out. And that is very much a kind of bringing in the kingdom kind of economy. And both of those economies are predicated on some sort of lack or scarcity. So either a lack within the church that needs filling by bringing in or a lack within our neighbours that needs filling by giving out. Um, and the third economy, which we want to suggest might be a helpful corrective to those two, although doesn't necessarily replace them, um, is, is a, a, what we're, we're naming um, throughout the book, really, um, a much more kind of mutual economy and an economy of gift and an economy which starts with seeking the gifts that are already present in our neighbourhood and among our neighbours. And that for me is an economy of mission that is much more consonant with those verbs of entering and receiving. Um, so I think there's so much, I think so often that story of Jesus with the children gets told as a twee little Sunday school story, wasn't Jesus nice to children? <laughs> And actually, it's a radical challenge to our very adult sense of agency and control um, and to let go of some of that in order to receive the kingdom of God. So we're going to take that and move this conversation. I'd say I, I want to be apologising because I'd like to talk about develop bumping into people, talking about connectors and all those kind of things, which, which are great. And I'd love to have a conversation about that but I'm conscious of time. So I just want to move on and um, leave time to just quickly talk about COVID because you call it the great interruption. But but just before we get there, let's just, uh, I want to say, I was really struck that you write about, and, and I've paraphrased this, so if I paraphrased it wrong, please tell me. Um, you kind of, I think you're saying that mission is less about bringing those at the edge to the centre and more about we, you say recollecting our collect, relocating our collective attention so the places we have thought of as edges become the holy ground on which together we discover the glory of God. 
And I wondered whether you could share a story uh, which demonstrates what you mean by that. Um, I can, we can, um, but I think I just want to preface it with just something about edges. Um, so we often think of edges in terms of territory um, and the edge is, you know, the, the circumference of the circle, if you like, um, or the cliff edge uh, off which we will fall if we walk any further. Um, but one of the images that we want to offer in the book around edges is that of the ecotone, which is a slightly kind of technical sounding word, but it's linked to ecology and ecosystem. And the ecotone literally is the edge space between two habitats. So say between a forest and a meadow, it's, it's the bit where one merges into the other. Um, and one of the amazing things about ecotones in the natural world is that they are the most evolutionary generative of places. They're, they're the places where the most uh, abundant new species kind of evolve and emerge. They're the places that are often the most fertile with life. Um, and so when we talk about edges, we want to acknowledge the kind of cliff edge kind of edges that that people particularly when they're marginalized experience as as places that are often profoundly dangerous but we also want to talk about edges in terms of those ecotone spaces that are precisely spaces of encounter and and of life and of abundance and the two may well often be the same places um and so we talk about in our neighborhood, in our community building work locally, we talk about bumping spaces. Um, and one of the most glorious kinds of bumping space that we've discovered here uh, has been what we call street events. Um, so for some years in our neighborhoods, uh, in the summertime, our community groups would put on a big community event with hundreds of people coming and lots of stalls and activities and stuff. And people would come in their family groups and groups of friends and they'd have a great time and they'd they'd kind of consume stuff uh, and then they go away and one of the questions we started asking people towards uh, the end of some of these events was how many new people have you got to know by name today and most people would not be able to list on one hand the new people they got to know by name today. Which doesn't mean it was a bad event, but it means it doesn't do that thing. Our street events are focused on maybe 50 houses, maybe a cul-de-sac or a, a green space that's surrounded by, by terraces. Um, and what we focused on in our street events is they don't happen unless we can find a neighbor who lives in that tiny patch of our estate, who's willing to be the host. And this, this goes back a bit to our conversation about inclusivity earlier and, and who actually does the inclusion and who does the welcoming and hosting. Once we found a local host, it's mostly them who goes and invites their neighbors to come out. And, and between the neighbors in this close or this green square, um, people will bring tables and chairs, others will bring cakes, others will bring drinks, others will be the welcomers, um, others will set up games maybe for the kids. Um, and what's remarkable about these events is, is not just the way they almost miraculously happen, um, but when you ask somebody at the end of the day how many neighbors have you got to know by name for the first time people you know will list more than two hands worth mm. of new names it's been genuine encounter at a depth that strangers have become friends um and and i think you know there's nothing of rocket science about these kind of events 
but they are remarkably different to a lot of the kind of things that we think we need to put on in our communities. Yeah. And I think, um, so I, again, I've had the experience of coming as an outsider to, to experience some of the, the local events, not just the street events, but others. And I'd say one of the defining characteristics of a Hodge Hill event is that you can never work out who's in charge. It really struck me when I was first, first in, in the parish that there isn't, it, it completely, destabilizes that kind of guest host hierarchical dynamic which characterizes so much of the church's mission um, in a really helpfully subversive way that puts people in a kind of mutuality of relationship that you can't get from one group of people putting something on for another group of people it only comes with that kind of mutuality and that kind of embodied enactment of the theological truth that we are all interdependent and um, that that's part of what it means to be made in the image of god who is trinity is that we are interdependent and that kind of yeah that kind of mutuality experienced at a street level just expresses that quite complex and profound theological truth in a really embodied and incarnational way which i think is is quietly remarkable we've got three minutes left perhaps and we've <laughs> we've run out of time uh, but we can't ignore covid19 because you know you call it the great interruption and so i want to know what the church should be learning from this great interruption what could we let go of? What could we hold on to? Or what could we be picking up? Hmm. Shall I go first? Um, I think in a similar kind of, in, in an analogous way to our conversation earlier about Black Lives Matter in a sense, we need to embrace COVID precisely as an interruption rather than seeing it as as a new opportunity to do stuff uh or as as kind of sort of shifting the way we do stuff into a new mode uh we need to work out how we can pay attention to what is being revealed in this time and actually i suspect even at this point in may 2021 uh the opportunity has not yet gone for stopping and paying attention and seeing what we can notice that maybe is being revealed at the moment that we hadn't seen before. Um, I would really echo that one of the words that we use in, in that final chapter about COVID is, is um, apocalypse, apocalypse as in revelation, the revealing of what was previously hidden. And we want to note that that is revealing to some people what was already obvious to other people um, and the power dynamics there are really important um, those of us who have more privilege than others have had things revealed to us that our neighbors have known all along about the precarity of life and the interdependence of community um, but yeah that pausing and listening and inhabiting the space of not knowing without having that anxious need to rush on to gain control of whatever is coming next. I think that's what the church is called to in this time. And, you know, we sit here having this conversation in the days between Ascension and Pentecost. And I think about the disciples being in precisely that waiting space of everything has changed and we don't know what happens next but being faithful in that awaiting um, and that attentiveness to the spirit and yeah being attentive within that to the dynamics of power and control that inevitably emerge in whatever comes next um, and how we can work perhaps a bit against the grain in some of that um, often by letting go i think 
I think so. Yeah, something about space and waiting and listening and letting go. Ruth and Al, thank you so much for your time tonight. Please, it, I, I'm generally not in commission, but if you've not read it, go and go and buy it, go and borrow it, go and take it from somewhere. I'd say buy it because you're going to have to read it about three or four times, I think. I don't think I, I, I need to delve back into it now and, and look at all that I've missed. Uh, thank you for your time um, and thank you for your insights and uh, thank you for interrupting us from our normal daily routine. Thanks. Good night. Thanks.